Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. How's it going? Oh, that sounds like an after dark voice. Are we recording late? <laughs> uh, we we are, and um, you told me that we were many times after... <laughs> After I failed to show up on time. <laughs> Which Gentle is, nudges. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I think it was 100% appropriate. <laughs> but I, yes, we, we are a bit after dark so that I don't wake my children and have them suddenly interrupting our broadcast. Oh, I thought after dark meant all our science stories had to be just a little bit sexier. Uh, I don't know how they could get any sexier, but yes. Yes, they well. are. <laughs> well, you know what it is, Santosh. We've put up a lot of educational episodes in the last few weeks, but now it's an alternate week. And do you know what happens on alternate weeks? Is it time for our favorite bi-weekly segment? That's right. It's time for another Journal Club! Ah! <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but an After Dark Journal Club. Ah! <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is going to be the journal club of terrible segues in a striking break from my usual. I was going to say, I was going to say, <laughs> you beat me to it. I, I, I like your terrible segues. I think it's signature. Well, I'm glad because for a while I was worried you couldn't bear them. <laughs> no, no, no. It's most of the other things I can't bear. <laughs> As long as, as long as this isn't a story that polarizes you, <laughs> I'd hate to see your grisly attitude. I I know, but you know, I I think I can grin and bear it. Well, good because this is a koala tea story. <laughs> Those aren't even bears. In our first story, which I've been sitting on for almost a year, from February two thousand. Oh, two years now, February 2019. <laughs> Whoops. Oh. <laughs> uh, brown bear saliva. You, yes, not, not last year, the last last year. Yeah. yeah. Brown bear saliva kills a bacteria that current antibiotics are unable to treat. So, you know, we're moving into a post-apocalyptic, I'm sorry, post-antibiotic world. Y yes, I, I have no problem with you saying post-apocalyptic there because... I, too, share the concern for what happens when 
anti well when antibacterials become no longer useful because of resistance patterns well an international research team reports that the saliva of a siberian brown bear ursus arctus cholerus can kill staph aureus and MRSA as well that does make sense because well they have to eat all kinds of stuff you know gross stuff uh, and they have to be able to digest those things probably from jump so that they don't get sick. So um, there are a number of antimicrobial compounds in pretty much every saliva. And I actually don't know. I know Staph aureus is not, it, it's not a zoonotic pathogen. So not all kinds of different animals have Staph aureus, it, but it's not exclusively human either. So I would imagine if it's not commensal to bears, if it's pathogenic to bears, or if it's evolved in such a way, co-evolved in such a way with bears that bears do not want it around, that the antimicrobial compounds in bear saliva would have evolved along the way to kill it. So this discovery originally came as part of a project studying the microbiome of wild animals. I love that. What do you do for a living? I study bear poop. You? The goal is to find naturally occurring chemicals that can kill bacteria that also infect humans. So while some animals are out there getting ready to start the next zoonosis, you know, these scientists are out there searching the non-zoo animals to yes. find bacteria we can use to combat it. Uh, almost as exciting as the early days of plant physiology when all the pharmacists <laughs> sent their adventure botanists out. Yeah, yeah. And, and just digging around and stuff. But I do love the fact that someone went out to Siberia, tracked down a brown bear, and just, you know, started running a Q-tip through various orifices and saving them, and then very quickly running away before the damn thing woke up. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine, like, Ivan, 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 wake up. What are you doing? In <laughs> using, well, you're right, because it just says using state-of-the-art screening techniques. Well, so, well, that that's the actual molecular technique. So that's the stuff once you get the sample into the lab, right? But at some point, it's not really state-of-the-art how you like... You know, Harvest saliva. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 pretty straightforward. He takes stuff. the bear out to a nice dinner, <laughs> compliments it on something other than its physical appearance. <laughs> he, that bear wakes up the next morning in its <laughs> den. It's like, what did I do last night? Oh my god! <laughs> so they captured. They captured several of the bear subspecies in the taiga, and I would not uh, misrepresent this. I wouldn't lie about taigas and bears. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my. <laughs> but because what they found from analyzing the saliva on a gross level is that while most of these bears are vegetarian, they also dine on caribou, elk, and fish, which means they have a wide range of things to create their microbiome. And one of the bacteria that was swimming around was called Bacillus pumilus, and it secretes an antibiotic compound uh, called amicumicin A. And the team believes the bears get this bacteria munching on one of their food sources. So they were trying to piece together which one. Okay, nice. They're going to be studying this particular strain to see uh, if it can be further developed into a more workable antibiotic. And it, I couldn't find a lot because they were more interested in examining the bacteria than the antibacterial toxins it's producing at this stage. Right. But the full study is available in the journal Penis. Uh, uh. <laughs> P-N-A-S. That's what I said. Oh, for the love of God. The Proceedings of the National Academies of Science, yes. It's not too hard. Uh, it's, so the study is ultra-high, <laughs> thoroughput, functional profiling of microbiota communities. Sure. Thanks for bearing with me through that last story. Now, speaking of terrible segues, you know what else hibernates like bears in winter? Uh, I mean... Before you go on, would you like to take a pause or? 
<laughs> okay, so what else hibernates? Well, um, several species of amphibian. Um, amphibians definitely hibernate, so frogs and maybe some lizards. I'm not sure. Or are you are you going medical? Cancer. Cancer hibernates like bears, Santosh. <laughs> It, that can't be i mean yes there there are certainly cancer cells that can become senescent and and kind of quiet Rawr. I, I, <laughs> just, I i don't know how it it you we got the word hibernate to to work in there though well let's go through the story but i i'm just picturing here was my thought process bear saliva has some positive antibacterial properties. Mm -hmm. Cancer cells hibernate like bears. Ergo, we should release bears in cancer wards and everything will be fixed. Wait, what? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't track at all. <laughs> so even after the most successful cancer treatment, most doctors really don't use the word cured. We say in remission because there's always a chance that cancer cells could just be hiding latent or dormant and reappear and cause a relapse. Right. So cancer is kind of a, it, it's a generic term to be sure that when we talk about malignancies or, or even I guess benign cancers, quote unquote, we're talking about a cell that has, first of all, poor cellular differentiation. So it's not doing its, its specialized job. And then it multiplies out of control. And so the extra nutrients that it uses up, um, multiplying out of control like that, sometimes they can cause excess inflammation while they're multiplying, and then they cause mass effect, meaning they actually press and squeeze on things. Or in the case of liquid tumors, um, like leukemias, they actually cause sludging in the blood vessels. And so all of these effects are what we think about with cancer. But the truth is, Josh, we're actually, we get cancer cells all the time. We get cells that they, they kind of lose their specialization, and they, they get a little bit you know, too quickly dividing. And then an immune cells comes along, tackles it, boom, just like that. And but, they rampage like marauding bears. Right, that's true. But that doesn't mean that all cancers have to be like this, just multiplying out of control all the time. Some cancers, you know, they, they do have those other properties that they've lost their specialization and they're not doing their job properly. But they may be dividing very slowly, or, or so I guess in this case, not even dividing at all. So oh. let's talk about that. I mean, for a long time, it wasn't really understood how cancer cells would stay in remission to then relapse. Uh, different studies showed a lot of different explanations. Sometimes they hide out in fatty tissue. Sometimes they hit, they just achieve an equilibrium with the immune system, kind of like Deadpool. <laughs> okay, uh, gotcha. Where, you know, the cancer cells constantly dividing, the immune system's constantly killing it, and and they're locked in a standoff until one side or the other gets weaker. And one study even found drugs used to treat breast cancer can directly trigger dormancy in some cancer cells, suggesting that they're trying to hide to avoid the chemotherapy. So a new study that showed up in the journal Cell is suggesting that all cancer cells, regardless of origin or specialization, have the capacity to enter this state of dormancy as a survival mechanism. And sure. let's, let's tie it to the analogy made. And they said it's like a bear going into hibernation, which is really the, the best connection they could come up with. The tumor acts like a whole organism, conserving energy to help it survive. And this is something that you see in a lot of animals. Over 100 different mammals have the ability to undergo what's called embryonic diapause. So let's say an animal like an elephant is pregnant, and then there's unfavorable environmental conditions. It's got a long journey to make. Food is scarce. Uh, hunters are after it, and it's just not practical or safe to 
hide the pregnancy. Well, some animals can totally resorb the pregnancy, while others just put the pregnancy essentially on pause. The embryo stops developing until conditions become more favorable. And cancer has apparently found a way to utilize some of this same mechanism through a cellular process called autophagy and put itself on hold. So that way, when you get hit with a section of chemo, the cancer cells say, oh, not favorable to grow. I'm going to hide and wait until things are all cleared out and then come back. Yeah. And that's kind of a scary thing to know. Uh, it, It makes a little bit of sense in that you know, it's essentially, it's a population of cells. There's not too much different from a a cancer where, uh, you know, the human cells have become undifferentiated and they're multiplying and these very basic systems kick in where the the organism, just like you're saying, the, the the new cancer acts just like a, a, a microscopic organism or a colony of bacteria. And what do bacteria do? Well, they're just trying to survive in their environment. They're trying to consume uh, resources and they're trying to grow and propagate. And there's no more kind of association with, oh, I'm actually part of this bigger organism. I'm just kind of doing my own thing. And just like bacteria or fungi in some cases have the ability to just kind of cool off when there's either a lack of resources or they're under attack, they'll stop going. Now, the interesting thing here is that the cancer cells are being attacked by molecules that depend on the cancer's ability to replicate in order to kill it. So a lot of them are what we call anti-metabolites. So if the cancer is using resources in order to divide, in order to grow, in order to create more of itself, then that anti-metabolite kind of substitutes itself as a poison, almost like a mimic molecule, Josh, as something that the cell would normally use in order to grow or get better. So some of the most common ones, the oldest school ones, actually, they mess up with folate metabolism by creating a substitute like that. So it's really kind of simple. If the cells are not dividing, if they're not growing, if they're not metabolizing, then an anti-metabolite has no place to work. So while many chemotherapies do work on active cancer cells, It's how to get these ones that are dormant. And now that we know this state of dormancy exists, these drug-tolerant persister cells and the model produced by the researchers suggests not only how they become drug-tolerant persisters, but also that all of them have that capability. So knowing how they hide and evade death from chemotherapy could now add on new cancer treatments designed to inhibit this hibernation-like mechanism. So in the long term, if we start seeing this work, so when somebody becomes treated for cancer, it can in fact actually be tentatively, don't at me, cured. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's that's the tough thing. And when we talk about like a cure for cancer, when we think about it in the singular that's one issue where, you know, there's actually many, many different types of cancers. But exactly what you're saying is right, Josh, is that it's really not a quote unquote cure. We're just doing our best to suppress the malignant cells that are circulating around. And honestly, the the best thing that needs to happen more than anything else is that you need to give the human beings immune system a chance to recognize those rogue cells and take them all out and when when the immune system clears that very 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 last malignant cell then that's a cure but the problem is we're not really quite sophisticated enough to know when that is so we always call it remission Um, but this is a much closer step to eliminating the remission state I like that. Yeah, Getting yeah, permission to remove remission. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really like that. That's awesome. In fact, it's something that if it could prevent future cancers from returning, you might almost call it a cancer vaccine. 
<laughs> it could. And this is where, you know, we do have that recognition now that the immune system is so, so important in terms of eliminating cancers completely and, and getting rid of not just that, that obvious or the visible cancer, but actually that little bit that's hanging out, you know, not just getting full remission, but cure and understanding that this is why in the last few decades, actually a couple of decades, we've gone from anti-metabolites to actually looking for an immune solution uh, to actually get the immune system to do its work properly and eliminate the cancer all the way. And then you're absolutely right. Getting it to understand that if this type of cancer is seen again um, by the immune system for the lifetime of the organism, for the lifetime of the, the human, that, you know, that immune system should go into work and take care of it. It should have memory. Well, good news, Santosh. We've already done that. We have a cancer vaccine. We've cured cancer. <laughs> uh, although, although <laughs> we, we I actually, should specify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've yeah, cured yeah. cancer in mice. <laughs> we we actually do have multiple types of cancer vaccines, and cancer vaccines are you know very much a, a modern thing and. Um, and, and there are several cancers that are now, you know, we have a, a much, much better handle on because we have this vaccine technology. So, yeah, go ahead. Tell me about it. This was another older study that showed a new cancer vaccine, and I'm, I'm air quoting here, that cured up to 97% of tumors in mice will soon be tested in humans for the first time. Now, this is another study from like around 2019. So, it is now currently in the process of human testing. That's the early update. Gotcha. Uh, but again, we're still a long way off from this being prescribed to cancer patients in general. So this was at Stanford University. And the treatment, as you said before, stimulates the body's immune system to attack cancer cells. So they studied mice with various cancers, including lymphoma, breast cancer, and colon cancer. And the treatment eliminated tumors in 87 out of the 90 mice, even, and this is the real important part, when the tumors had spread to other parts of the body. See, that's awesome. That's absolutely fantastic. Now, this is something where we've had uh, issues like this before, where when the tumor goes to other parts of the body, all of a sudden, they act a little bit differently. They have some different properties where your previous uh, uh, tumor suppressors, whatever they were, you know, your anti-metabolites or your chemotherapy, um, the they would not work anymore because for some reason, the same exact cancer cells, but in a different context, you know, now sitting in a different organ would not be able to, you know, be susceptible to those chemos that you gave or even worse, Josh, there would be a lack of blood flow over there. So wherever, if you don't have blood flow, you can't get the chemotherapy to go to that specific spot, um, whereas immune cells can actually roam a little bit better because they can marginalize outside of blood vessels. So all of a sudden, boom, it's hidden. You know, now, now you can't find it anymore. So those were always scary things. And often that would mean, you know, you, you gave just that bad prognosis to your patient and you said, you know, there, this is, we can't do anything more for you without hurting you kind of thing. So really the only thing that this shares with a vaccine is it's also delivered through a needle mm -hmm. and it's a type of immunotherapy. So it's a combination of two agents that stimulate T cells to attack cancer. And Santos, you've been over both helper and killer T cells before. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, <laughs> really, really quickly, uh, they're both types of uh, CD4 and CD8 cells. They're both there are both lymphocytes and the helper cells help the immune system gain memory and they act as little adapters to tell other immune cells what to do and how to kill. The killer cells 
you know, the, the act directly to either destroy a cell, like blow it up. Okay. <laughs> or to uh, act on a pathogen like a bacteria or a virus to kill it. As a tumor grows, it suppresses the activity of the T cells so that the cells can't keep cancer at bay. Imagine it is like the blob. It just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding, and eventually it's too big for the T cells to successfully attack, or it's in too many pieces for them to hunt down every last one. Right. And they also develop some kind of cool evasion things well i shouldn't say cool some really horrible uh ways to to evade immunity there are supposed to be signals on the surface of every single cell so those helper cells josh are actually patrolling the body they're looking to see you know if they pass by a muscle cell or or another blood cell or something hey do you have all the markers that tell me that you're a working you know, good citizen of the body and everything. And there, there's supposed to be some things like if you lose a certain type of marker on your self surface, or you gain another one that you automatically tell them, Hey, something's wrong with me. And this is going to get a little morbid, Josh, but the cell actually puts up a little flag that says, kill me. <laughs> kill me. Yeah, it puts up a marker and says, Hey, there's something malfunctioning with me. Uh, you know, my, my machinery screwed up or I'm going to turn into cancer. So please kill me. But interestingly, the ones that turn into bad cancer actually evade a lot of that surveillance by actually hiding those markers that say, Hey, come and kill me. Or um, still keeping those markers that say, hey, I'm a healthy cell, you know, don't, don't. So the two agents in the treatment work together to reactivate T cells in the tumor. And because Mm. they were already inside the tumors, they've been pre-screened to recognize cancer-specific proteins. So injecting the treatment into just one tumor, because it already had those cancer-specific proteins in animal studies, allowed it to put up a radar and track down metastatic cancers in other parts of the body because the active T cells migrate around and destroy any tumors that spread. They already say, hey, I know what that looks like. I was rescued from the capture of the flag enemy territory. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I like that analogy. Um, so they gave the treatment to mice that were genetically engineered to develop breast cancer, and it was injected into the first tumor that appeared in the animal, and it prevented the occurrence of future tumors in many cases. So think for a moment about this, this cancer vaccine, air quotes, combined Mm -hmm. with the immuno study that we talked about earlier in the episode to prevent remission. And now you're really starting to look at a, you know, the beginnings of the long road to the middle of the end of cancer. (laughs) We are starting to consider thinking about uh, entertaining the possibility of (laughs) the end of maybe ending cancer. And, and this is really tough, right? Because there are, Cancers out there that don't share any type of properties with the type of cancer that they're targeting with this vaccine, and those will be a completely different challenge. Um, There are going to be some cancers that share some of these properties, so we can use this knowledge and generalize it to other types of cancer. But Josh, I do have to put up a little bit of a warning. This is what's called an active immunization, where rather than giving an immunization to stop something before it happens. So, you know, you get your pertussis vaccine before you get whooping cough. So you train your immune system to ward off whooping cough before you ever experience it. But in this case, you're actually immunizing the cells while you have active cancer going on. There is a little bit of a possibility. We can't do this you know, down to every single tiny little tumor in a single person, because there is a small possibility that in training the body to kill self antigens, right? Because these are the the body's own cells that you could 
have some adverse events that you don't want. So we do, we do Oh God, no, not all of us. No, not all of us. And no, but you know, we were already in the middle of this, right? When we were giving chemotherapy, you're killing rapidly dividing cells. Well, yeah, the cancer is rapidly dividing, but so are your skin cells, so are your gut cells, so are your liver cells. So, so we are were your already, cells. Yeah, exactly. So we were already kind of living with quite a bit of toxicity when it came to chemotherapy. So this is a different sort of uh, toxicity that we have to think about more, more long-term. So Stanford published this uh, in Science and Translational Medicine, but I should again remark, uh, even though the this particular study is a little bit old compared to when it first came out. It was a phase one study. So it's only testing the safety of the treatment and it's not designed to determine how effective it is in humans. It's just to determine can humans take it where it will cause more benefit than harm. Right. And we look at in these phase one, you know, small groups like this when we do it, Number one, we want to make sure that we're not causing more harm than good. Number two, we can examine what's called the pharmacodynamics and the pharmacokinetics, where we can actually examine what the drug is doing inside of the human being in terms of how fast it's metabolized, how fast it's eliminated, how high the drug levels get. And so we're also helping determine what the dosage should be in the event that this is a medication that we do want to move on in phase two and phase three trials. Now, as long as we're talking about Stanford and drugs that can do more harm than good, segues. Yay. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Let's talk about another one where two researchers are trying to re-engineer an antibiotic without one of its more toxic side effects. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yay for antibiotics. Okay, this is the sexy part, right? Yep. So <laughs> aminoglycosides. Aminoglycosides. And I'm, I'm actually really, really glad we're talking about aminoglycosides for one big reason, actually. Aminoglycosides are probably, unless we get a hold of these these problems with the toxicity and stuff they are on their way out there isn't a lot that aminoglycosides can do that other medications can't do better without all of the toxicities in the modern day and age so i i'm actually glad we're addressing this because they're actually really well, don't don't count them out yet, Santosh, because oh. the thing that's kept them in use from the 1940s, even with a pretty significant risk of hearing loss with repeated doses, sure. uh, is that they're cheap to make and they don't need refrigeration, which means almost every developing country has it stocked in their pharmacy. Oh, no, they, absolutely. And, and I think they are... WHO, I can't remember if it's called Category 1 medications. Um, I, I can't remember what it's exactly called. But basically, they are they are essential medications to have if you're in the field and you're giving care. At minimum, it is recommended to have ampicillin or amoxicillin and then an aminoglycoside on board in order to specifically help treat um, gram-negative bacilli uh, uh, infection, so like E. coli, for instance. So Tony Ricci, PhD and professor of otolaryngology, otolaryngology. this is why I call him ENT, yeah, I can't pronounce he's, he's the ENT. Yeah, yeah, he's an ENT. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's ear, nose, and throat, because I can't pronounce his specialty properly. Yeah. And he ended up uh, really studying as you can tell from being ENT, hearing and the role played by ion channels that open only in response to sound vibrations. So here's where we're going to have our aha moment. The key cells in the hearing process are hair cells uh, because they have these tiny little hair-like cilia in the inner ear. Mm -hmm. And we have a very limited number of those cells. And when they die off, 
whether from loud music like the kids are playing nowadays, <laughs> uh, simple aging, or a toxic antibiotic, they don't grow back. And that's how you get, you know, deafness. Right. Um, and that it's kind of a scary thing because it's not like you can tell overall deafness. You, you have a certain length of hair cell sitting in your cochlea, uh, cochlea, sorry. <laughs> and if you lose that particular hair cell, that frequency of sound is the one that you can no longer hear. So the shorter ones, which help us hear higher pitch noises tend to die first. So it's, uh, I, I think it's a joke that's often done, right? Like if you have a, a super high pitched sound, um, you can communicate or or bug uh, little young people while sparing the older people in the room, type of thing. So that's that's one of those things that we've learned about as we age, we lose those high pitches, and right. all those pitches exist as ion channels which act as pores in the cell membrane to let things through. So what Ricci discovered, uh, Dr. Ricci discovered, is that these pores, which open into tunnel-like channels, are a lot bigger than the scientific community previously thought. Instead of being 0.8 nanometers, they're 1.3 nanometers. Whoa! <laughs> Just absolutely massive, yes. <laughs> but uh, it, it does, why does this it matter? Does yeah. <laughs> because before this... Most scientists believe that aminoglycosides worked like corks plugging the channels up, and that's what led to the hearing loss. And once right. you've got that cork stuck in the bottle, it's not coming out. Right. But in fact, with these larger pores, that means those drug molecules are easily passing through the channels and streaming right into the cells. Oh, nice. Okay, gotcha. So it, it gives us a recourse. It, we don't have to just shut it down completely and say... That's it. If you lose your hearing to aminoglycosides, you're done type of thing. Well, basically, Dr. Ricci said, wait a minute, if they're not plugging up the cells to cause hearing loss, and I don't actually know how they're destroying hair cells, why don't I just make them too big to enter the channels in the first place? Make it bigger! <laughs> this, is, this is the Dr. J approach to science. Yeah. <laughs> How are we going to solve this? I don't know. Make it bigger. Make it bigger. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I don't have any problem with that. That sounds like a, a really wonderful solution. And if it works while still allowing the, uh, the, the molecule to have its antimicrobial effect and not, uh, so here's one of the things about aminoglycosides, right? They have very, very broad activity, Josh. Okay. A lot of the time you can't use them as monotherapy because of the way they act. Uh, you, you tend to get resistance while you're treating the person with the antimicrobial. So you have to actually pair it with something else. So that's, that's one problem. But another issue is that if you do make it any bigger, you may actually have trouble using it because one of the best qualities of aminoglycosides right now, because they're so soluble, is that they can get into a lot of different body compartments at, at, in order for them to act. Okay, like the listen, Santosh, designing a drug is difficult, all right? Well, yeah. <laughs> Luckily, uh, yeah. Stanford has thought ahead and solved that program and connected uh, Dr. Ricci and Dr. Chang, his, his research partner, two basic scientists with literally zero experience in developing drugs. Uh, and they connected them with a program called Spark that assists scientists in drug development and moving their discoveries from the lab into patient care. They basically got a whole little brain trust of crystallographers, chemists, microbiologists to design this drug to be big enough to make, you know, Dr. Ricci happy, but still small enough to be technically effective. So far, they've completed two rounds of testing on 18 new antibiotic compounds, and of the 18 versions, three candidates are successful enough to be further studied. Nice. Now, the, here's the thing. The first round, they said, after two rounds of testing, the first round, they created drugs that don't enter the ion channels and don't kill hair cells. 
With the second round, they made significant progress at making sure the antimicrobial properties stayed intact. Great. It doesn't make you deaf, but it also didn't work. Now, it it doesn't make you deaf, and it works uh, a little, but... But they are not as effective at killing off as wide a range of bacteria as the researchers need for a final product. Why? Too big to enter into the bacteria. (laughs) So they're still trying to do another round of compound testing, and then they'll advance it to animal testing with literal guinea pigs. Because, you know, why not give rabbits and rats a break? (laughs) Well, in this case, truthfully... Uh, I think guinea pigs have a a little bit better similar kinetics to the kind of picture that we want to see in human beings to make sure that if that animal model works out, that we are seeing results which are translatable uh, into human beings. So we do want to avoid that mistake where it, it happens in a lot of cases actually where you know, hey, it worked great in the mouse or it worked great in the rat. Well, what does that actually mean? Oh, uh, it works great in mice. <laughs> it means we've cured cancer Stop it. in mice. Stop it. Moving on to the last study, DNA inside living bacterial cells has been edited with CRISPR technology not to cure diseases, but to encode and store information. We're now turning bacteria into tiny little computers for long-term data storage. Yay! This is fantastic. I I think we've talked about using bacteria as little factories, as, uh, you know... So why not little warehouses? Yeah. Well, little warehouses, I think we, we have actually done. This is so cool. Using actually them for data storage is absolutely you know the next great frontier we know that we somehow in order to properly store large large amounts of data there's nothing better than a biological system they do so much better than silicon systems and things like that in terms of efficiency but for us to get to the point where we can reliably put in the data and extract it later that's the trick but if we can do it josh you can pack so much more information like per organism than you normally could like in a computer in terms of raw space so let's talk about your new favorite scientist okay dr harris wang at columbia university in new york hey dr wang uh, started looking at DNA, where we know DNA is encoded using four bases, adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine. Mm-hmm. That sequence, depending on how long it is and how it's arranged, can be synthesized in a laboratory and stored within everyday objects, like bacteria. But Dr. Wang and his team took this one step further, and they used CRISPR to insert DNA sequences that encode binary data, the ones and zeros that computers use to read and keep memories into bacterial cells. So they took a gene editing tool to edit DNA, which is already used as kind of a way to encode everything, and they put a second level of encryption. There's two-factor authentication in this thing. That's that's some secure data. You have encryption from the DNA spelling everything out, and you further encrypt it to spell out ones and zeros for a computer. Gotcha. Uh, By assigning – and here's why Dr. Wang is my favorite scientist of the week – By assigning different arrangements of these DNA sequences to letters of the English alphabet, the researchers were able to encode the 12-byte text message, hello world, into DNA inside E. coli cells. Sweet. And I think the more important part here was not only the encoding part, but they were able to... Text? Yeah, well... No, no. I mean, that makes uh, a good amount of logical sense. You know, you know how most people text with bacteria? Sneezing and coughing. <laughs> That's true. Or, or, yeah, uh, or occasionally uh, vomiting or with diarrhea, yes. Hello, world! <laughs> so instead, he turns the bacteria into the text message and 12 bytes. 12 bytes is what the memory our early cell phones had. Mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I I I don't know if it was even cell phones, Josh. Like we're talking very very early computers here. Um, but yeah, this is it's so cool because we are in an age now where we understand that we need to figure out a better way to store and propagate data and the fact that you know we have things like quantum computing and photonics and all this other stuff in the realms of like physics and engineering but the fact that biology is getting in on the game like this is so awesome i'm i'm hyped i'm just picturing like an amazon warehouse instead of like stacks of hard drives a bunch of moldy sandwiches like- <laughs> No, no, no. That's kind of the neat part. Well, yeah, that was. Oh be... my God! You just ate the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. <laughs> that could, that could, but more than likely, Josh, it would be very small uh, vats, actually. And if you wanted to actually encode in DNA, the neat thing here, right, is already biologically before requiring you know, any kind of like, you know, how do you copy and paste the information? Well, you know what? The the E. coli already does it with a pretty, pretty good high fidelity, low error rate. They have uh, polymerases and you can check and recheck the data and it has its own kind of inherent error checking that it goes through. And finally, I think the, the coolest bit of all of this is if you just wanted to store that DNA, right, you don't necessarily need the E. coli. You could desiccate the DNA. Well, and- I'm going to stop you right there because okay. when DNA is kept outside the cell, mm-hmm. it can easily be degraded, whereas bacteria have the ability to adapt to changing surroundings, can survive under harsh conditions, and you're basically forcing the bacteria's evolution to protect your data – that the cell has. So yeah. that's really interesting for long-term storage, but something to be aware of down the road is that, you know, depending on where you're inserting the DNA changes, you could affect how the bacteria evolves and encodes information. Like you said, there, even though they're low rate, there is mutations in DNA during cell replication. Right, right. And the last thing you want is your E. coli computer to replicate, and all of a sudden you're locked out of your Bitcoin account for $220 million. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So we do have to figure this out to some extent, but this is not an insurmountable problem, and it's not a problem that we've never seen before. Every time you copy information from, you know, like say your hard drive to a thumb drive, something like that, there is an inherent small error rate. But we've learned how to work around a lot of this with redundancy, excuse me, with redundancy and kind of um, error checking as we compute. So yes, we're at the very beginning of all of this information, and and how we're we're going about this technique but there's nothing at all to say that we won't get to the point that we have with silicone um it, this is so so cool i, I, know I like the idea of it escaping from the lab and then all of a sudden you have a common cold that people catch and it makes them geniuses <laughs> Well, it might not make them geniuses, but it I'm, may... It, I'm a little sick. I've had most of uh, the MBA's stats in my head all morning. I'm hoping to shake it and get back down to just my favorite teams <laughs> by next week. It may make them, rather than being geniuses, it may make them like kind of really interesting like walking storage devices. So like the guy on the toilet, he's like, oh, I've got terrible diarrhea. I just lost the entire War of 1812 and the Encyclopedia Britannica volumes A through H. Yeah, but that would be that would be bad for him. See, so like he, he didn't protect his data, so he might not be able to collect his commission like he should. I don't know. You know, like if, for instance, like Amazon is paying him to be like a walking, talking server. He's got to he's got to protect the data. A Janet? Yeah. Like that. All right. Well, I I think this has some real interesting sci-fi applications, but <laughs> we'll have to see where it goes. However, that's it for this week's journal club. And all my awesome segues, but I'm going to throw in one random bear fact, which oh, yeah. I think I've told you before, Santosh. Okay. But when we talked about the brown bear 
or the grizzly bear. Its Latin name is Ursus Arctos Horribilis. Okay, gotcha. Which, if you translate from the Latin and the Greek, because Arctos in Greek, it also means bear because that's where they saw bears was in the Arctic. They <laughs> thought those were just creatures that lived there. So Ursus Arctos Horribilis means the brown bear or the grizzly bear is named Horrible Bear Bear. <laughs> That's the scientific name, folks. Love it. Oh, no. Run. It's the horrible bear bear. That's it for this week's Journal Club. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to sources used in researching this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, although the vaccines are coming, Wear a mask, wash your hands, and if you're lucky enough to have gotten two doses in a country that accepts you, happy travels. Bye, guys. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 